Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, well, we're here for the lucky 13th Tone Duff session, and we're here joined by our guest Janice Garza, uh, not only an author and former rock journalist uh, that's been in the trenches with us a long time, but also an expert on cats and has written a lot about cats, and so this is going to be sort of a kitty cat episode as well. I can hear a lot of the rockheads uh clicking off right now from inner space, but hey, that's I, all right. I, I, I co-authored the um, Lemmy's Autobiography. We are going to get to that. We wouldn't yeah. let you slip no, out I, of here without yeah, talking well, about I, Lemmy. I, I, don't want them to, I don't want them to leave so too soon the moment they hear, oh no, cats. Oh, everybody loves cats. Yeah. I was just saying that to yeah. be... Well, like you, we got Elsa over here with her kitties and beer t-shirt on, so... Yeah. That's not kitties and beer. All right, very that, good. Since you brought it up... Uh, why don't we dive right into White Line Fever? Oh, yeah. And, of, of course, this was a big year, thinking about Lemmy, who's been gone a year now, right? Yeah. Has it been about, a whole year? It, it'll, it'll be a year at the end of December. He died a few days after his birthday, which yeah. is uh, December 26th. Uh, and one thing I always wondered, were, were you guys getting set to do some kind of follow-up to that, or was, was the book the book, and he was satisfied with that? Because, I mean, obviously the career went oh. on for quite a while after the book came out. I don't think he was really all that interested in pursuing any other book projects after that. I mean, I ha my agent um, had me give him a couple of pitches, and he just—he wasn't really all that interested. And I, it just—he just wanted to do his music thing and and hang out at the Rainbow and, you know, just be Lemmy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, book's a lot of work. I mean, yes, you know, it is. Yeah. Uh, we did like, a, what, how, how many, like 37 interviews for that. And I kept on having to go over to his apartment um, and um, doing interviews. And then I'd like, you know, type up stuff and fax it to him. And he'd like make his corrections and fax it. So to he him. actually edited what you were coming up with to a degree. Well, yeah, of course. You know, uh, because the whole, the whole point of the book was. It, it had to sound like him talking. And so I'd like, you know, take what he was telling me. Well, I would like lead him in conversation for like an hour, hour and a half or whatever. And then I come home, transcribe it, and then I put together some cohesive narrative that, you know, made some sort of sense. Um, and of course, I'd have to string it together with like parts where I was writing where. It wasn't Lemmy speaking, and it, it just and it, we needed to make sure that those parts worked for him, or okay. if they didn't work for him, that he changed that he changed them. So did you? You said you did all these interviews. When you went over there, was there like kind of a specific topic for the day, and maybe he already knew about it, and was sort of getting his thoughts together, or, or do you keep it fresh every time? Just well, today we're going to talk about. Well, we went overkill or whatever well, it was. We, we started. We basically did it in chronological order, except that he always would go off on a digression about one thing or another. And uh, sometimes, if you've read the book, sometimes the digressions wound up in the book. And sometimes I did save the digression for when it was actually pertinent to the chronology. No, I can definitely see all that. Uh, I interviewed him a few times for like hard and heavy little quickie things, but I did a cover story on him for a bass player, uh -huh. and that I that took two visits in six hours. Yeah, 
and there it wasn't all that much in the story. It was just that, like you said, you'd be talking about one thing, and then all of a sudden you're in the next room looking at his his collection of uh, Nazi uh, memorabilia. And it was, yeah. and he would that would be an hour. Like, look at this. I found this here. It was in the catalog, and he would explain the history behind it. And, yeah, I mean, be, it was interesting. I couldn't use it, but it was it was yeah, great. Yeah, we'd be talking about Fast Eddie, and there'd be a knock at the door to be UPS with some more knives. You know. <laughs> It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it was pretty fun. I mean, I remember actually, um, I forget if it was his birthday or Christmas or something. I actually got him a, a piece of coal from the Titanic or something for for his you know for for some birthday holiday or something at some point because they were offering a limited edition like Titanic memorabilia somewhere. And he was also a big fan of the Titanic in addition to uh, World War Two Nazi stuff. So. I mean, a, definitely a singular guy. What, you were looking to tell your story? Should I? Why not? I have, has it been well, on already? All, first of all, I, I'm fascinated that, that he has a fax machine. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm just fascinated. Um, so we were cleaning out my parents' house, and um, my brother found a Nazi bayonet belt buckle and a uh, plastic container that we assumed was for some sort of poison or something. Uh-huh. So my brother was going to take it, and I was like, no, that is not going to my niece and nephew's home. We are not keeping it. Uh-huh. We're giving it to Lemmy. And so... As it should be. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, everything he's given to us. Yeah. And so it was actually Inger Laurie who uh, hooked us up. We, we met her up at the Rainbow, and she walked us over to his apartment, and we gave it to him. And he's like, oh, do you want this, that? And I was like, a picture or anything? He's like... I want absolutely nothing. He gave us a couple CDs. Well, he gave us the he new Saxon to, record. But I was like, I personally, I want nothing in return for these items. I just want you to have them. And he's like, yeah, he's like, thank you so much. If you gave them to a museum, they would just end up being cataloged and nobody would appreciate them. And, mm-hmm. and every time I ran into Lemmy after that, he would give me more information on like the bayonet and what year the buckle was from and all this stuff. And it was just like... The most interesting thing, he was just yeah. so fascinated with history. Yeah. Um, but I could see how it'd be difficult to conduct interviews with him. I mean, didn't it take you years to do that book? It, it did. because Well, the problem also with Lemmy, sometimes it was hard to get a hold of him because he'd go, okay, let's do it at uh, noon, call me at noon tomorrow or call me at noon on Tuesday. And i call at noon. And he wouldn't be picking up the phone because, you know, he's probably like, you know, partied the night before and had some girl or like, you know, sometimes like, you know, the girl would show up and I'd have to, you know, I'd have to leave because he <laughs> had, you know, he had his plans for the night, you know, so and. You know, on top of that, it's you know he had to make records and he had to tour, so a lot of times he wasn't even around, and it was trying to trying to do stuff with him over the phone and all that. It was just it, it was just too hectic and too difficult trying to get it done that way with him. Like who knows where he was going to be, like when he was on the road, and this was in the days before cell phones and all that. So it was a lot more difficult to get stuff done, you know, by you know by phone or by text or by email. And between the two of you, who whose idea was it actually to do a Lemmy oh, book? Did me. He, it was totally You pitched me. it to him and goes, let's get oh, this ha- even, make this happen. I'll tell you exactly how it happened because it's something that for some reason will always stick in my memory. Remember the Foundations Forums? Of course. Okay, I was standing in that lobby talking to Jocelyn Lobel, who was working at uh, CBS, Sony, and a publicist. And we were just chatting about stuff and... I forget how the topic came to Lemmy, but uh, I probably had been working on a Lemmy story for Rip or something like that, because that was when I was senior editor at Rip Magazine. And 
out of the blue, I said, you know what? Lemmy really needs to do his autobiography. And I, and on top of that, he needs to have somebody to collaborate with him that will really get it done and get it done right. And I'm that person. And she's like, oh, really? Because Todd Singerman's right over in, in the restaurant right now. Why don't, you, why don't you talk to him about it? And I was like, all right, I will. And so I did. I just, um, and Todd knew me because I'd done a couple of stories on a, uh, um, on Motorhead at that point, I would, I'd reviewed 1916 for uh, Entertainment Weekly and gave it an A plus. After I had sworn up and down I would never ever give a record an A plus, and so anyway, I go walk in there, I see Todd, and he's like, "Hey, James, how's it going?" And I'm like, "Todd, I got to talk to you about this." So I sat down and I told him that uh, my idea about having let me do his autobiography, and he was like. You know, I think that's a great idea. Let me talk to Lev about it, and uh, we'll get you know, and I'll have him, the two of you, get together, and talk about it, and see if it'll work for you both. And he did, and so went over to Lemmy's, and we did a little trial run. I did like a little sample, like a you know, chapter for him. We just talked something out, and I just did a few pages, sent them to him, and he's like, "Okay, this works. Let's do it." And um, actually, a couple of people had tried before to do an autobiography with him and the only thing is that uh, for one reason or another it had fallen by the wayside. The whole key to getting Lemmy to do his autobiography was to just hang in there and get it done and not let life get not let your life get in the way because of course his was going to get in the way all the time. So I did. All right well I mean I think it's one of the better rock biographies, autobiographies I've ever read and it, I think I think you were able to make it so that you feel like it's Lemmy telling you the stories. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was really. Uh, yeah, that that was the important thing was trying to get it to uh, be Lemmy's voice because that's the whole thing. Is Lemmy has such a strong voice and it's his autobiography, and you know, honestly, I would rather when it comes to somebody like Lemmy, I would rather read an autobiography than read a biography because it's just, you know, it's not going to be as much fun. It's not going to have that sort of like, you know, that gritty feel of the man. No, I totally agree. It, yeah. But most, I don't think most people, especially a lot of musicians, uh, are up to it. So uh, let's let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about Fit Cat Publishing. Which is kind um, of funny because we have a cat named Lemmy, which you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Should I bring him in here for the transition? No, no, he, okay. he's no, not, much, actually, not much of an interview subject. Lemmy was telling, that was part of our conversation. It was way actually before Lemmy the cat was even born, I think, uh, we, because it was early on in our interviews. Uh, he was talking about how everybody he would come up to him and say they would name their pets after after him. He's like, yeah, people named parakeets Lemmy. It's like, <laughs> no, I remember that in the book, and I think we yeah. had just gotten Lemmy, and I felt sort we of stupid did. about it. And, and like, we weren't going to mention it. That to you. And then Inger Laurie's the one that's like, they've got a cat named Lemmy, and we're like, oh, thanks, Inger. Weird. Well, my save was, yeah, but I mean, in all fairness, he's got white boots and a snaggle tooth, so what would you name him? Yeah. You know, there's only so many names that Yeah, and he's fits. incredibly handsome. I think that's I true. That he's a good looking boy. Well, anyways, Tell me, tell me about this publishing. Company. Okay, it's a, um, it's it's a little indie boutique publishing company. It's very nichey. I try and take uh, people with like really small ideas that are too small for midsize or larger publishers, and I sit down and I work with them on like putting out their book and 
making sure it makes money and trying to find an angle on where, where it's where it's actually going to be in a place to make money and i found a lot of the uh, a lot of things that really help is putting a charity angle on the book um, I have two anthologies that are both cat rescue anthologies. I publish I publish other things besides cat rescue and um, you know or cat books and all that. And we'll, we can get into that in a minute. But right now I'm you know I I'm working on the second of a in this um, anthology series, and it's basically it's a dozen authors and they each pick out a rescue that they want proceeds from the book to go to, and I assign them a promotion month. So it goes on for like basically 13 months because I keep December aside because December is kind of like a, you, you, everybody's gonna everybody's sell, doing it. Everybody's right. going to sell books in December, but yeah, um, and uh, the and and their rescue gets um, donations proportionally to the uh, number of books that they sell in their promotion month. And a lot of times they get the rescue involved, and the rescue throws some sort of. A so there's a whole outreach through a, a, whole, yeah. a different chain of people from each author. Yeah, from each author, and so I, and that's how I've worked it. And uh, the, like I said, this is the second in the series. I'm like actually just finishing laying out, and uh, the first one, actually, it made money for everybody. It made money for. Me, the publisher, had made money for the authors. The authors each wound up getting about $150 worth of royalties up to now. And each rescue got, um, rescues got between, like, say, around $37 up to, like, 400 some dollars donations. Because, like, I one lady was... Uh, she just busted butt. This lady with this, um, the, this writer with this uh, Tucson rescue, uh, and it wasn't even her cat. It's a cat that lives at the rescue that's permanently disabled, and it, it was just amazing. The, the rescue just went all out, having parties for this, you know, this book, and just publicizing it. And she, the author herself went around and got that got bookstores to actually buy copies of the book from our distributor Ingram it was just amazing I, I had one actually one bookstore that didn't even like to work with Ingram bought for me directly even though I said the books were non-returnable and she bought 50 books wow. so anyway she wound up getting like uh, her rescue wound up selling more than any other uh, author out of the other 11 authors and she wound up getting her I it was like four hundred and something dollars. That's that's great. So then each story is about uh, a cat that was rescued and how it affected both the people that rescued it and the cat. Sort well, of like I, a actually, uh, it, what what it is? It's written through the cat's point of view. It's written like a memoir. Okay. Only it's written through the cat. From like the an cat's autobiography point. of the cat. Yeah, and it's and and it, I find it really interesting because each cat has such a completely different voice from the other. As as a you know like. And and often different from the writer's own voice. All right. It's really it's really interesting, uh, you know. Just because some cats are really funny, some of them are just sort of like you know, dry. It's some of them are like just really dramatic, and and it's it was really cool. The other um, the the first book actually um, I belong to the Cat Writers Association, which is a real thing. It's like a I think there's like a maybe three or four hundred people that are members that uh, belong to it that write about cats and it's like um, a networking you know organization and it also we're associated with a pet blogging conference and we have a yearly contest with like a special awards that are cash prizes and stuff it's really it's really a good group but um, 
Um, one of the one of the cash prizes is like uh, it's called the President's Award, and it's basically um, the top winners of uh, the basic cat writers things. They get Muse medallions, and the president picks out of all the Muse medallion winners, and there's like I don't know, there's like dozens of them. She picks out her favorite. Um, her, her, her favorite Muse medallion winner out of all of them and the person gets a plaque and a cash prize but it's like really prestigious and one of the short stories in the first in the first book actually got that president's award oh wow year. yeah yeah so then that's another thing that boosts the book as well yeah in it, terms it, of like... it looks good I mean I, I actually like yeah um, in my book budget I budgeted for um, entering contests and it's actually, I did that more for the writer's morale, to be honest, than to actually any prestige, because uh, winning contests, at least on this small of an indie level, is pretty much equivalent to getting book reviews or getting um, record reviews. If you're, uh, you, know, you know, you wrote for Rip, you know those record reviews never sold records. No. You know, and it's the same thing with the contest. I do it because I know it's the, the writers really love it, and it just... You know, and, and it's not like hugely expensive to enter contests. Well, let's let's talk about. Um, you say in your in your uh, publishing company, you find people and kind of guide them through this process, and, yeah. and it's not always about cats. Give me an example of someone who's come to you with some idea they couldn't quite get off the ground, and how you helped them make that happen. Actually, um, it's it's somebody I came to, and it's a project we're still working on. And uh, what happened was, I was on. Facebook just messing around and uh, your friend of mine Janet Housden. Oh yes. Yes. Okay. She started ripping through these haikus and you know she's like you know, they were nasty cynical hateful haikus. I think and, I actually saw some of those. Yes. And so I was like and I contacted her myself and yeah, I just sent her a message. I go Janet. Uh, no I said actually on, on the status I said you should, ha you should make a book and call it Haikus of Hate. And then I messaged her and said, I'm serious and I want to do that. And so anyway, we're working on them. She gave me a little like self put together pamphlet type. type I don't, there's a, not pamphlet. Oh yeah, Penny for Your Thoughts. Or, yeah. 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 And so that's that's before that she'd already written that. Yeah, correct? she'd already written that. And it just like which it, I thought was pretty good. And she, you know, she had so much trouble. And see, this is this is one of the reasons I really like having my publishing company she had so much trouble because it yeah, these people you know were throwing it together part-time and it just like and, and sort of like you know it was the the project wound up falling by the wayside and somebody else picked it up and and just it's it sort of like you know never got a cohesive amount of attention i just like you know it could have had a little bit better layout it could have like you know i i noticed i i, I have a copy of it i there were some editorial mistakes i don't want to say but you There's know always editorial but, mistakes. but yeah but it just but there aren't as many when you have somebody who's a real editor and that's the thing it's just like i'm i'm, I'm like completely hands-on with these projects i'm the editor I lay out the book interior myself. I hire off for the cover because I'm not a cover designer, and that's something that's really that that's an important specialty that um, you really need to hire out because covers really suck. I mean, I, I mean for my own projects, sometimes I'll go, I'll, I'll cheap out and do my own cover, but you know, for for another writer, it, I, I need to give them something. And like with Janet, I'll probably wind up just using a photo, but I don't know if it'll be my photo or something from work files or something, um, but. Uh, I, I, that was something I sort of, uh, I don't know, was sort of taken aback with when, when I did my book because uh, 
you know, coming from a record company back in the day, you'd really get focused on a cover. Cover's a huge thing, uh-huh. especially when people are flipping through the rack. Sometimes that cover is what yeah. makes you pull either a record or CD out. And you go, oh, what's this then? Uh-huh. And it, it seemed like in the book world, that was like, ah, it doesn't matter that much. As long oh, as there's no, some no, kind no, of... T- no, no. I mean, I just sort of oh. felt like... And then when... And I was sort of like taken aback. I go, well, wait a minute. That's that's the outside. That's the package. Of course it matters. And then when I, I went to a bookstore and I was actually looking at all the books and I was like... Yeah, these aren't that good. I mean, if these were records, these would all be getting rejected. Yeah. Out, like out of hand. And they a lot of times I'd felt... And then I actually started looking through my own books and I'm like, yeah, there really wasn't all that much thought put into almost any of this. Really. I it, I, uh, my, the cover to, to the first um, um, first anthol- Rescued Anthology won awards. And the next... Th- this is the book. I mean, obviously it's... Yeah, a podcast, you can't see it. But this Aww. is this is the book. No, that looks really good. Yeah, it looks really good. And uh, yeah. That looks more like a magazine cover to yeah. me. Yeah, but it's like... You know what I mean? It's a really nice... It's more a really, graphic. Yeah, it's a really nice cover. And um, I'm just really... I'm really picky about covers. They are important. It's part of the packaging. Uh, I mean, it's just like, you know, I, I, take, I take the first... Co- and it's going to be the same with the second uh, Rescued, but I take the first Rescued around of people I show it to them. I mean, like, you know... The first thing people say is like, "Oh my God, this what an awesome cover!" I mean, the cover sells sells copies, especially like uh, when you're an unknown writer or you're an unknown, you know, quantity as a, you know, I mean, nobody cares about who publishes the book. If you if you see if you don't know anything about a book, it, you know, basically you're just going on the cover as to whether you're going to pick it up off the shelf and open it up. I think I think uh, some people will think that, uh, you know, like that liner note like the little back cover crib thing whatever you call it you know if, if you get someone to write this book did this for me and it's about and such and such is such a genius or whatever like some kind of recommendation that actually appears on the outside of a book which happens all the time on yeah. on most books yeah. something like that is there I, I wonder if that has more of a, a you know a selling power than just the graphic itself no, the, well, no because you have to the graphic has to grab your eye before you actually like We'll hone okay, it I get you. Text. That's step one. You have to yeah. at least do that, exactly. or else who's going to read the no, thing? No, it's on like the, the cover. The cover. I, I can't emphasize enough how how important the cover is. Okay, I mean, I, it's really it's I, because, and I'm very picky. I mean, I know so many indie authors where I'll just like. And they they go rinky dink on the cover, and it just like it, it's an embarrassment to what's inside of the book. Well, I think most artists that if if you're in music or if you're writing, that's not your forte. I mean, I can't tell you how many records I used to work on at the label or even my own. Where oh, here's the record, it's all done, it's great, and it'd be it'd be early. Yeah, we'd be ahead of deadline, Uh but we'd still miss actual production deadline because no one could figure out the cover. You know, so like everything just ground to a halt at that part because that just wasn't anybody's. You know, they would go to the the guy at the label whose job it was, but then. You know, then you have to convince a whole band or an artist or something. Oh, this is where it should go. Well, it's not what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? I don't know. You know, what I mean, like that kind of stuff. Like, See, that, it's ridiculous, that, that, but yeah. it happens all the time. Well, that's it. That that's that's the great thing about being a book publisher is that the book publisher doesn't care what the writers think. You know, they, but don't you have to kind of get it past them with their little? It's their art. So. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I'll I'll tell you, I'm a okay. I I I've worked with uh, both like uh, tr- large like publishing houses and mid-sized uh, publishers, and basically, they just show me the cover and they go, "Here you go. Here's your cover. 
you know, I hope you don't have any problems because, you know, we're not really going to change it. It's with that kind of attitude. Yeah, I mean, I like, I love the, I thought the cover of the Lemmy book was great. The um, I did think that was a good cover. Yeah, the Dear Sparkle, um, you know, Cat the Cat advice from you know, um, book that I did for Adams Media was brilliant. I mean, there, there was no way I was going to have any issue with that cover. It was great. It, it was an embossed cover. It was really oh, gorgeous. Wow. Yeah. And so anyway, I mean, it's like if I'm working with a single author, of course, I'll like show them the cover and stuff. But, you know, it's just like, you know, authors don't have that much say on the cover, you know, and uh, just and it's one of those things where at some point you have to pull rank to, with people and go because you know what a good cover is. And I know enough authors and I've seen enough authors who do their, you know, take charge of having their own covers done. The, the, well, so many people are into self-publishing these days. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, I see those, and I, I know most authors don't know jack about what goes into a good cover. So do, <laughs> do you feel like... Sorry, you, it's just true. Uh, I mean, that's fair enough. Do you feel like you learned this stuff from, say, back in the day working at magazines? And Because all, I guess we should also point out that, actually, when I met you, all the way back in Music Connection before Rip, you were mainly working if I'm not mistaken, as a photographer, more even more so than uh, writing. Yeah, I started off as a photographer, and basically I just sort of, uh, I don't know, I, I, I somehow, like I was writing for uh, Ruben Blue for a while, and then for Kelly um, over at uh, LA Review. I remember how I started writing for Music Connection, because um, I was I was doing a lot of photography for Music Connection, so I'd be showing up every week with, with photos for Bud, you know, Bud Scapa, who was the editor at the time. And one, at one point, I was always taking pictures at the palace because they didn't care if you brought a camera in or not. They were really easy about that. So I, well, there was a Nils Lofgren show. And so I went in and took photos of Nils Lofgren, and it, they were really nice photos and stuff. And I show up with these Nils Lofgren photos, and Bud's like going, our reviewer didn't make it. Why don't you write something? I go, okay. And I gave it to him. He's like, oh, you need to write more for us. This is good. So, yeah. And well, and I can see that, too, because, it, you know... Uh, I had to edit my little six-page section of the magazine and some of the stuff. You know, and that was back in the days when it was actually typed out and you had yeah. to correct it on a piece of white paper, double space, and try Oh, man. I still know all people the don't, People don't understand how that all, that all worked. That was, like, hardcore. I had to do that with one writer for the first rescue because she was from Canada and, and she didn't have the same, like, yeah, word software that we did. So she had to fax it to me from, like, Nova Scotia and I had to, like, you know, just, you know, do all the marks on it and fax it back. Well, it seemed like we were still kind of doing that even as we slid into uh, maybe the very beginning of the 2000s even. Yeah. I feel like it was still hard copy going through a fax machine even though you were even though you were doing it on a word processor yeah it wasn't really like the email element of it really wasn't quite that slick yet yeah and also it's like a word uh, you know uh, Microsoft Word didn't have the tracking changes yet I don't think no you know? I don't think yeah. you're right about that yeah yeah oh how far we've come I do remember one day uh, speaking of music connection you know, and Drew Cobb. I think you've met Drew. He did yeah. the cover to the Jester's records. There was a whole team there. So the graphic department, they cut, you know, they had the big oh, tables yeah. where they cut it all together, like, yeah, by hand. Yeah, it was like that at It was like too. three or four people that banged this out every week. And one day I came in, that room was gone. And there was just a guy, some little nerd guy, huddled over a computer. I'm like, 
who are you? What are you doing? Because I'm putting the magazine together. It was just like, boom, just like that. They were all out on their ass in one week. And then the next week it was on a computer. That was it. Yeah. yeah it's Progress. Well, see, the whole thing is when I was at RIP, well, even when I was at Music Connection, I was totally fascinated with the editorial process. I was fascinated with the laying out process. I was fascinated with everything. I wanted to watch everything. I mean, you know, for the first, like, a, a year or two I was at RIP, I shared a, um, yeah, I, I shared an office with Richard Lang. And, uh, you know, who was basically... He was basically the managing editor and handled everything. Lon was the figurehead who talked to all the like you know, rock stars and got all the good interviews. Richard was the one who really was the meat of the magazine as far as getting it all together. To make it look right and read right and sound right. intelligent. Yeah. And, Which it did. For a yeah. bonehead rock magazine, it read really, really well. It did. And it's just like in a lot of that, um, I attribute to, number one, Lon knew how to pick writers. And number two, Richard was just a pro ex you know, editor and really was he, was, he would sit there and be nasty and cynical and talk about how he hated everything and hated all this music, all these different bands and stuff. And he was so, so good at what he did. I mean, I, you know, I, he probably doesn't even know how much I looked up to him. Well, he checked it down to the word. I got a call from him one day. He goes, Bruce, there's something in your article I don't understand. It was a review or something. I go, what is it? He goes, we use the term woodshedding. I go, oh, that's a musician slang. It means like, like really knuckling down and just, shutting yourself off from the world and practicing a certain thing until you have it totally worked out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's basically a slang for really hardcore practice. Because, oh, okay, cool. Great. Well, I'm going to use it on some girl in a bar. <laughs> I, was, I just thought that was funny. Like, okay, he needed to know why it was explained. I mean, why it was used. But then once he got it, he goes, okay, I can use that to my own advantage yeah. in, the, well, in my life. Yeah, I remember he used to have, a, he had, remember his bulletin board where he had all these lost, lost pet posters, like lost cat, lost dogs. And he always would find these really bizarre, like, you know, lost pet posters and he'd take one and put it up on his bulletin board and I always remember one because it said lost conehead cat and it was a drawing of a cat wearing a cone <laughs> <laughs> it happens yeah <laughs> it does happen you look like you have something well no mind. I would say for, for anyone listening who doesn't know who uh, what RIP magazine was it was started by uh, it was a Larry Flint production. it was a Larry Flint publication it, it started, started off by his wife right Althea was that oh was is that true idea? Was, it was, it, her, was that her it was, brainchild? It was her idea, yeah. But it was originally, um, like, Stella worked there. I think you were an original. Um, were you there right well, when it started? Well, what, what, I wasn't right when it started. Well, I was I, in the first issue. Who, who, was, who was the editor before? I can't when? remember his name. His name was Michael something. I do yeah, have those copies. I, I, I remember. But it was a different feel. It was like more like a kind of an alternative rock, even though that wasn't an expression then. Yeah. It was like the cramps could have been. I think the cramps were in the first issue. Yeah, I think issue. they were. But And yeah. uh, it sort of veered. And they were like, no, this isn't selling. What do we do? Yeah. And they brought in Lon, who worked in Lon. Hustler. Yeah, we worked in He yeah, was yeah, just yeah. a regular Hustler writer. And he goes, I got the idea, and we're going to make it. Metal magazine. Yes. Well, see, that's the thing. Okay, so Larry Flint was a publisher of Hustler magazine, and when I think of Rip magazine, I think of the movie The People versus Larry Flint, and I picture the early days of Hustler as portrayed in that movie, but with music, like music writers. Well, we weren't quite that much around a round table, but it was interesting. You go up to the. I mean, just that kind of that level of creativity. You go up to the offices, and they looked as zany as they did. I mean, those were yeah. the real offices in the movie it was yeah it's a crazy place and getting you know a larry flint i f remember there was something on the news where he was involved in some scandal and it showed his check and it was had the stamp on it I go ah oh, it looks just like my checks i love that because it'd be his name on the check you know for every every single person 
down the down the food chain. Lon's actual brilliance was um, with um, with the magazine was his ability to delegate. I mean, he would find the right people. Uh, it just like he picked, like you know, picking, you know, having working with Richard. Okay, it's just like you know, I I, I got in the magazine because what happened was, uh, well, I did some. I think I did some photos before I actually got um, asked by Stella to write. But just out of the blue, Stella called me up and said, uh, "Would you like to write reviews for us?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And then a couple of years later, um, you know, I wound up um, in her position. <laughs> You know, a senior editor. I think she got sort of moved out because of the, you know, the switch to like a more hard rock, heavy metal type of publication, which really wasn't, not I, where her I, heart I, was. I, yeah, yeah, I don't think she was happy there with Juan, and, you know, it's like, it just, it things happen, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I had, you know, I really, <clears throat> I really enjoyed it there. I learned a lot while I was there. I mean, I really learned about like magazine production subsequently it helped me a lot working later on with book production so where did you where along the line did you decide to like become your own publisher because you had, you were doing books prior to that well i have a blog um that's written through the cat's point of view Obviously, that's correct i'm big on that the cat's point of view narrative. what's the name of the blog sparklecat.com and it features my it features my therapy cat Summer, and she's um, she goes um, she and I go to hospitals and uh, to um, we're supposed to go to college later this month too. Um, but anyway, and she like you know, makes people feel better, and she's also an award-winning show cat. Uh, she's a regional award-winning show cat for the Southwest region, and uh, she's just pretty much all-around awesome, pretty pretty cat. But anyway. Um, I it's written through the cat's point of view, and the cat before that I started the um, blog with Sparkle back in uh, 2003. She for many years she had an advice column that she had monthly, where somebody would find out that I had a cat a cat blog written through the cat's point of view, and they'd start talking about their cat because that's what happens. You say cat, and anybody that has anything to do with having a cat or liking cats or loving cats wants to talk to you about cats. Yeah, it happens. Yeah, it happens. I get it. And so anyway, it, they come up and they go, oh, you know, my cat does this and that and it's this problem with you. And I go, well, you know what? If your cat was, you know, talking to me, this is what your cat would say about the problem you're causing that's making it do that. And I was like, wait a minute. I should put that in the blog and have it be like a Dear Abby style advice column. So I, I would, so people would talk to me or ask me about problems with their cats, and I turn it around and have the cat write in the problem to Sparkle, and Sparkle would answer in her sort of nasty, cynical way because she was a nasty, cynical cat. Whereas the cat that's running it now is a really nice, sweet, friendly cat. She was nasty and cynical and didn't have a lot of respect for human beings. And so anyway, and yet you named her Sparkle. Sparkle. Well, because. I, <laughs> Because I knew I was going to put her on the internet, and I needed I needed something that was a generic nice name. The cat before her was named Harlot, and that fitted her really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but anyway, Har Harlot's going to have a, a her own book fairly soon. So. So then you're saying that you started the publishing company to sort of well, put this all yeah, into yeah, in to put put it put it together. I you know it's sort of like the book was sort of my Eskimo sort of things sort of my entree into a, uh, but what it was was I just after about after about three years I had thirty six um you know advice columns and put it, putting that together with photos it was enough to make a book and 
Oh, course. so it was an anthology of your own stuff. Yeah, it was. Okay. It was basically. Yeah, it was. A, it, it was. You know, just this uh, book of like advice, dear Sparkle advice columns, and uh, I figured that uh, nobody in their right mind was going to want to publish a book like that. I was not going to get a book deal with a book of cat advice because this was what two thousand between two thousand and six and two thousand and nine. It was like a there there was before Grumpy Cat and all the, the, the you know... The explosion that we're in the, the middle of now. The explosion we're yes. in the middle of now. So I figured, why not just put it out myself for the hell of it, you know? And um, at first, I, I put it out on Cafe Press because it was, uh, you know, Cafe Press did books at the time. I don't know if they still do or not. And it was just... And, and it's just like, I wasn't really that happy with it because, you know, Cafe Press isn't a professional book. So wait, is that one of those places where you submit it and they print them as it, you sell it, them? It, well, it, it, it's a print-on-demand product right, company. Okay. It's not. It's like more t-shirts and mugs and stuff. And, you know, they had like some CDs and, you know, and books that you could do and calendars. And uh, so they did a little bit of publishing. I, I don't think they... I would be surprised if they still did books because the thing is like print-on-demands come a long way since 2006. And I wasn't that happy with the job they did. And it was like kind of... Um, I mean, there were things that I didn't like that uh, you couldn't fix with their formatting. And so I decided to turn around and do it professionally. So I started getting involved. I have an account um, with uh, Lightning Source, which is a, a print-on-demand company that uh, is like the print-on-demand company. I mean, big publishers use them and stuff. So, I mean, it's like a, it's a huge company for print-on-demand. And they're involved and they're associated with Ingram for distribution, which is one of the biggest distribution companies in the world. And so anyway, I, I mean, I just like figured I was going to do it. I was going to do it all the way. Um, I um, subscribed to lynda.com, learned how to do InDesign, learned how to lay out a book properly. What was like, it called, Linda? Linda.com. And uh, this was like years ago, you know, like back in the like late two, you know, 2000s, like 2008. Um, and it was all familiar stuff, but none of it was intimidating to me. And um, I also learned how to um, format ebooks because formatting ebooks, all pretty much HTML. And before um, I went to WordPress on, on, Spar on sparklecat.com, I was hand coding the website myself. So I knew HTML language. None of this was intimidating to me because I knew all that stuff already. And it's just the editing part. I mean, I, I do all that. You know, this it's just something that I sort of like have pretty much grown up with. It's part of my DNA. Do you keep a kind of an eye on other people sort of doing self-publishing and seeing how their stuff comes out? Oh, all the time. And I, I mean, yeah. do you think most people are up for the job? I mean... No. Okay. No, uh, I totally do not. I mean, it just... Uh, I think that... They, I think people can almost always do better having somebody else do it if possible. And the the people that do self-publishing, the absolute best, hire out for everything. They hire out the editor. They hire out the cover designer. They hire out the interior layout person. And they have like a whole staff of people doing stuff for them. And the only thing they're doing themselves is the writing process. Part because writers write. I mean, it's just, and a good writer writes well. And a writer that writes, a brilliant writer does, you know, chances are they are not a brilliant cover designer. He's already yeah. used up his brain to do all that writing. Yeah. It's, How much left over? Yeah. It's just, well, you know, it just, I mean, and, and, the, the, and it's like, you know, it takes time away from their writing. I mean, God knows, I know as a publisher, 
it takes time away from my writing too you know it just it, it you know you gotta you've gotta like you know, really focus on what you do well and there are very few writers that are good editors I mean it's just like I know that for a fact and I know like writers that are way more brilliant than I am that desperately need editors and when you edit them it's just like you know it's like you know taking it's like taking a rough diamond and making it brilliant you know I mean I I did that a few times with writers at rip I mean there were very few writers that just didn't you know you know they didn't need that I mean actually I just you're one of the few writers that really didn't need that much work <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know what that's attributed to, but I, I, I yeah. did find that, because I did a lot of the smaller editing at different places I went to, not the big stuff, but yeah. but that also meant I was working with people that are, were even a little bit farther down the food chain, Yeah, and some stuff would come to me that was just astounding. But if it was, you know, if it was a thing where someone was covering a certain kind of music or a certain band that uh -huh. maybe most of us didn't want to cover, uh -huh. you kind of had to work with it, you know, and figure yeah. it out, and like... Or like you're trying to polish a diamond. I I was mostly trying to make something passable. Trying to polish it. You know, just like see, if, let's just get it out and make it so yeah. it like kind of gets from word one to word a hundred. I've always said about myself is that I've never been able to decide whether I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway or Max Perkins, and I kind of like get to be a little bit of both. Yeah. With, um, having my own publishing and company. the cats yeah and the cats yeah well the i want to actually the cats with are Hemingway, good. Hemingway. yeah Hemingway with the, the Hemingway cats and i was gonna say there was this uh one of my early jobs in hollywood was um i had this job working for a record company which was the sky and uh -huh. i would drive up and down the coast selling his material this is not triple x records no, if no, people no. are listening in it and was wondering. like gray no. market cds out of the trunk of my car to record stores so basically, I kept saying I was a bootlegger. I don't know. My roommate's like, are you carrying a gun? I'm like, am I supposed to carry a gun? Anyway, we decided to go legit and start this little record store. And we we're setting it up um, someplace down in La Brea. And um, I, we were going to have postcards that were getting all the, the record, you know, shelves made and stuff. And so this guy came in and he was like, pick out the postcards you want to order for, you know. Yeah. And so my coworker at the time, Dina, was with me, and all I'm picking out is cat postcards. And she's like, it's a music store. You need to pick out some music books. I'm like, okay. And the guy's like, no, really, the cats sell way more than any music postcard. So transitioning from music to cats is probably a pretty smart business move. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I yeah, I I I just I I don't know. I just sort of fell into it. I mean, I keep on trying to branch out from cats, and I'm like, a, I'm <laughs> branch actually, up. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Seriously, I'm, I'm like. Have you tried salmon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because like I I just I I just want to publish good good stuff. You know, I mean that's what I'm really interested in. I mean I keep my 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 next my personal projects. I mean like they're. The next couple ones are all like cat projects. One of them is a combination of cat and music project because it's like uh, the memoir of Harlot. You know, it's a rock and roll kitty. Um, but um, my agent every so often has a um, something he pitches me and then it never comes through fruition. So, you know, we're still waiting for some something to, to happen there. And 
in the meantime, I'm just doing what I'm doing. I'm just like, I just, you know, look, looking for writers with a good pitch and with a, you know, um, and, and with something that I can actually market. So if somebody has an idea and they want to pitch to you, how, how do they get that to you? Uh, okay, um, editor at fitcatinc.com. And what I need is, um, I just need a paragraph pitch. Just say what you've got, um, how you, you know, who you are, a little bio on yourself, um, what your project's about, and uh, how you plan to market it, and have a proposal ready because that's what I'll ask for next if I want to see it. There and you then, go. And FitCat Inc., it's I-N-K? I-N-C. Oh, it's I-N-C, as in incorporated. Fit incorporated. Okay, yeah. thank you. Fit I just want to make sure. Good catch, good catch. Good well, Janice, another thing I wanted to bring up, and sort of the reason I felt like this was a bit urgent, uh -huh. uh, is that looking at your Facebook page, uh, I see you're getting ready to skedaddle out of this uh, insane asylum we like to call the United States of America. <laughs> and I thought maybe we would uh, go over some of uh, your feelings about that and what spurred this, uh, not necessarily sudden, but you tell us. I mean, you're, you're planning to move to Canada and start a publishing company there. And this is uh, primarily, uh, you know, inspired by the recent... Uh, oh yeah, it's just uh, yeah, political I, I, election yeah, I'm, we went I'm, through. I'm really like a, it, I just think that the person that um, at this point seems to have the electoral votes won is not qualified for the job, and he's um, stirred up a lot of hatred, and it's really gotten bad. And uh, I mean, this is a country full of hate right now. And I'm half Hispanic. I'm Hispanic surname. I'm female. And I don't really feel that comfortable here right now. And I just want to sort of have a home base. I mean, I'm not actually moving out, like, you know, dropping everything in my life and, like, leaving the country. I'm basically renting an apartment in Vancouver, and I'll be traveling back and forth between there. But I just want to have a place outside of the United States in case things really super go south. So you're not really moving. You're setting up, like, an escape I'm valve. I'm setting up. Yeah, exactly. All yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, it's just like I own a house in in um, Los Angeles, and I've got a fiance that cannot move to uh, um, that can't move to Canada right now because he um, he has a past uh, he has some legal matters that he needs to take care of. That uh, which I mean, let, let's put let's be serious about it. As much as everyone's going on about you know uh, changing of immigration policies for the United States, it's way harder to get into most any place else that's civilized. Yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it, it you know it it really you know every, every, well every country has its own um, has its own rules about like you know, what to do if you want to become a citizen or what if you what if you want to establish permanent residency and all that stuff. I mean I've looked at all the Canada options and you know I mean right now I'm going to be back going back and forth where I can just go back and forth as a visitor and it's not going to be a big deal. Because I'm going to be. But don't it, at some point don't they go? Hey, who's this person that's renting a permanent residence from us? Well, you know, just if they, you know, I, I actually because I'm going to be working with Canadian writers as a publisher, and I'll basically be giving them something to do. I can probably establish permanent residency if I want. Probably. So I mean, is that something you've already sort of got underway? Um, I well, I've hardly gotten anything underway because I haven't even. Um, 
I'm, I'm going up to Vancouver next month to like uh, um, scout around location. Kind of investigate it all. Investigate True it. enough. I mean, Locations last time I checked, Barack Obama is still technically still our president. president. But no, I just like, and also I need to I need to set up a bank account up there. Okay. Yeah. And so, and just get a few things done. I mean, I've applied for the Nexus program, which means um, uh, it's like TSA pre, you know, only for Canada. Like, you know, so, you know, it gets me through. Um, oh, okay. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. It gets, it gets me through customs faster. All right. That's a good thing but yeah so um you know california's the you know bluest of blue states i live in one of the bluest districts you can possibly imagine i mean we went for bernie um in the primaries yeah and um you know this is an extremely liberal part of the country and there are hate crimes happening in you know in burbank and I happened to uh, happened to a friend of mine who's like a, this nice little older middle-aged Jewish guy. Well, he's not that well. He's bigger than me. Um, but yeah, he was got got accosted by these like thugs that um, were going to like you know do serious damage to him in a movie theater because he said he didn't vote for Trump. I had and my coworker came into work shaking because she was on the bus, uh -huh. and she's an immigrant from Mexico, uh -huh. yeah. uh, a legal one. Yeah. And um, she said, "There's a man on the bus saying, get out of, get the f out of here.'" Yeah, and and so anyway, just like uh, and and you know the re the rhetoric um, that uh, was unleashed, um, you know, by this person that has the electoral vote. Right you can't now. quite say his name yet. I won't even say okay. his name. We don't it's need a, to say it. Not my All president, right. never my president, ever. You know, um, I mean, it just like, I just don't, I, I just, I just loathe what he's done to the country by his like you know his hate talk his hate talk and all his um all these big rallies which he wants to continue now he wants to go i mean he wants to do a victory lap now and drum up more hate i mean i just like it's disgusting to me i hate that i mean i hate this hatred it's just you know what can <laughs> yeah, i say I but yeah and it just and everybody's nasty to each other and it's everybody sniping at each other now and people that are on the same side are getting mad at each other it's really I, I just like, you know, I hate what this country is turning into right now. Did you see it coming or did you think it was going to sidestep? Um, you know, I got to be really honest. Even e even if Hillary had won like uh, most of the people I know expected it to, there was, a, there was I still saw an awful lot of hatred going The damage on. was done. Yeah. Well, that's something that I've talked about with other people in that uh, whatever happens moving forward, it will never even go back to the glory days of, you know, like you know bush and clinton or something mm -hmm. uh, phase one i mean by that and you know just that uh it's really turning into idiocracy everything's like really like bullet points that are ridiculous politicians are twittering yeah it's just ridiculous yeah. tweeting excuse me but you know what i mean and i, I just don't think it's going to get back to a serious talk and like actually discussing reasonable plans about moving forward with issues uh, ever again. Which I think is it's going to be kind of clown time from issues. here on out. Yeah. But you know, I, I'm going to disagree. I work at a, at a, I work at a crisis hotline. Sorry, I didn't mean to break your train of thought. Uh, we, I do need wine. No, I, I may actually, have to edit this you know, out, but I maybe mean, not. I work at a, at a teen to teen Whoop. crisis hotline, and um, we actually had our teens on um, being interviewed by Alex Cohen on a Take Two on KPPC today. And one of the teens who was 17 was talking about the calls that came into the hotline on uh, election night from kids who were um, LBGTQ+, who were just, like, concerned about, you know, the uh, 
increased intimidation, what's going to happen to the rights, people who are concerned about their um, parents or their families being deported, um, you know, hate to them towards uh, because of their religion. And like, part of me is like, like, part of me is like, I, me and Bruce have always talked about, let's move to like some really cheap country with a decent metal scene, you know, where we can just retire. <laughs> what, um, like Spain? Portugal? I don't know. Spain would well, be like, nice. I'm yeah. still trying to find that decent metal scene because it has to have a decent metal scene. But the thing is, I was thinking about this kid and they're like talking to him and he's like, or she was like 17 and it was like, you know, this kid has to stay here and fight. And I'm like, and the kid's only a teenager. And yeah. I'm thinking of all these kids coming to the hotline every night dealing with these calls. And as much as I want to, I do understand the whole thought of like, I mean, at least I am, I'm a female, which is scary, but dare I say I'm lucky that I'm white for that you're, reason? Yeah, you're lucky. You're, you're white and blue-eyed and you're straight. Yeah, and I'm the and I'm actually the daughter of an illegal immigrant. <laughs> my mother illegally immigrated here. Um, but... Yeah, you so know, my, my Hispanic dad is legal, or was yeah. it? Yeah, said now, but yeah. Um, but it's just so. Well, we're in California. I mean, I grew up around so many Mexican kids, and my, they were my, just the other kids. My, that's da all. my dad was born like outside of Houston, and so yeah. Well, I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico, forty-two yeah. miles from the border. I used to go to Juarez, Mexico, like almost every weekend from yeah. eighteen to twenty-one. Yeah. But you know, it's like I've just seen how brave our teen listeners are. Because yeah. I mean, they don't have a choice. They're teenagers. Yeah. They can't right. go anywhere. They can't, like, go. Yeah, and that's what's that's what's kind of inspiring me to like keep up the fight the good yeah. fight but it is really scary yeah no i just like you know i'm i'm yeah it's like it's not like you know because people are some like some people i know are kind of like they're kind of mad at me and like you know they're thinking that i'm like running away i'm hoping you have a guest room so we can visit yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm like uh you know but i'm, I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not i'm not like i'm not leaving forever i mean like I, i've got my my home base is still here i own a home down here i'm just like you know i just need I, 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 you know, I have the means to be able to like have an escape if I need it. And while I'm at it, I figured like, you know, why not help some Canadian writers? Because well, wouldn't that be awesome? It's just, you know, like, it's just it's a win-win. Yeah, it's a win-win. And, um, and, and it's, and it, and, and it's really cool because that means I get to like, you know, change the, um, English to uh, Canadian English when I do my editing. <laughs> Well, I, wonder, I, know, I wonder how uh, hard that'll be. I know a lot of. Oh, there's like there, there, there's there's a, there's a lot of different spellings. That's where you're talking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know a lot of Canadian webmasters. Can you get like a a, a a Canadian style word program so that it's helping you with that? Um. Oh, you you, As you, you can change the English. You can you can change the. Oh, that's a okay. That's the yeah. thing. Oh, and we got to like hook you up with John uh, Thor the Rock Warrior. Yeah. So oh. you can write his autobiography. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, he had a movie out on him, but he yeah. needs a book. Yeah. <laughs> Keep plugging the movie. I am Thor. I am yeah. Thor. All right. Well, listen, uh, we are we are nearing the end uh, of the time that we like to keep it under. So, Janice, you got anything else you want to plug or say or anything else you want to mention? Um, I don't Let's see. It's just like you know, go visit sparklecat.com. And uh, if you're a writer and you have something good to pitch that's a... You know, that's something that a small publisher wouldn't get sued over writing, you know, publishing. Let me know. I think Elsa has a cat book in her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and I want to say, it's just like, you know, I, I, were, I have these two anthologies out. And um, so I'm, I have like uh, 20 writers because two of them are repeats. Those writers, most of them, I have no idea where they stand politically. And that's the way it should be. Good. You know, I mean, because it's just like, and that's the other thing that I think that this um, election is like, you know, done in a negative way. It's really torn people apart 
more so than normally, you know, as far as people with their political differences. And it's just like, I'm really sick of people like, you know, like not being able to find common ground, you know, it's just, and that's the thing. This is what I want to end with. Okay. Um, I have a cat blog that gets 30,000 page views a month and we get like, you know, we get hundreds of people visiting every day and they're of all sorts of their, you know, gay people, they're <coughs> ultra conservative people, they're <coughs> extremely liberals, they're like, you know, they're people from all over the world. They're every different kind of people you can think of. And it's a community. And these people, it's just like if one of them's in trouble, it doesn't matter what their politics are, what their personal life is like, where they live, everybody comes together as a community to help them. And that's the way it should be. I, I'm really sick of seeing all this divisiveness. There you go. All right, we're down with that. Down for a group hug too. Yeah. Yes. All right, thanks everybody. We're gonna say goodnight for now and we'll see you next time. Say goodnight, Janice. Good night. Good night, Evelyn. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio, 